Spherical cow. Hello there and welcome back to Spherical Cow. This week we are continuing our journey through the history of the universe. Um, I know we've been going on this journey for quite a long time, but there is just so much interesting stuff to talk about. So without further ado, take it away, Olivia. Thank you, Nina. So we now move on to the cosmic dawn, um, which is a rather beautiful name given to a most beautiful era in the beginning of the universe. Um, uh, the cosmic dawn refers to the creation of the very first stars and galaxies, which transformed the universe from a dark, gaseous place to one shining with light from all these galaxies and stars. Yeah, and I think um, one of the reasons why the Dark Ages was actually called like the Dark Ages is because, as we discussed last time, when neutral atoms formed, so that was around 380,000 years after the Big Bang because the, temp um, the temperature of the universe was finally cool enough for those um, pro positive nuclei and electrons to like combine together and form neutral atoms. So when that happened, as we discussed um, previously, the cosmic microwave background photons, well, they weren't microwave back then, but as we observe them now, those were finally released at that time. But those um, photons actually shifted into non-visible wavelengths kind of quickly, like relatively speaking, I guess, after three million years. So basically there wasn't any visible light in the universe at, for for like a couple hundred million years maybe and um there were also no new light sources until um this cosmic dawn happened that olivia's going to tell us about yeah yeah so that's perfect nina so you mentioned something called the dark ages which was basically the period of of time before this cosmic dawn and the dark ages lasted about several hundred million years so it's a a long time uh, to wait for for light to shine through the universe but anyway here we are so at this point in time the universe consisted of ordinary matter which was mainly gaseous hydrogen and helium and a smidgen of other light elements um, thanks to big bang nucleosynthesis um, and the cmbr radiation which nana just mentioned however also in the mix with this um, ordinary matter and radiation was a substance which we now call dark matter Yes, and I think, um, sorry Olivia, I think we mentioned dark matter last time when we were talking about those baryonic acoustic oscillations because that dark matter was quite important if you remember. But And it's also really important to like, um, like starring galaxy formation, I think, as Olivia's going to tell us. Absolutely. Oh yeah, you've absolutely read my mind. So yes, this dark matter was an absolutely crucial component in the creation of the first stars in this cosmic dawn. Um, and the cosmic dawn was largely driven by this ever mysterious substance. Um, and I think we've spoken about dark matter before, the properties of dark matter before, but if you need to refresh your memory, in summary, dark matter is comprised of particles that do not absorb, um, reflect or emit light. So they cannot be detected um, by observing electromagnetic radiation because they just don't interact with light, which is why it's dark, because it can't be seen with light. <laughs> um, um, but we know um, it exists because of its effects on objects which we can deserve, um, can observe directly. So we do know that it exists, but we can't just see it directly. Yeah, so that's from um, things like um, when you look at rotation curves of galaxies, the stars seem to be like orbiting the centre much quicker than you'd expect. And you can only explain that if there's extra mass in that in that um, 
cluster of stars to hold um, those stars in rather than them like flying out of orbit. Um, mm -hmm. And there's also something called the bullet cluster, which we've discussed that um, when you use gravitational lensing, which we've also discussed, um, and look at where the mass of that um, that bullet cluster lies, you find that it doesn't exactly quite match up with the visible matter you can see. So that suggests that there must be some more matter which is invisible. So that's the dark matter. Um, there's also um, something in Atlas um, where they look for missing um, transverse momentum in um, their detectors because um, before the two protons in the Large Hadron Collider, that's the a particle accelerator, collide, they like collide head-on, which means there's there's no momentum in there in a perpendicular direction to them. But afterwards, if you notice there is some momentum, then you know that you must be missing some particles which you can't detect, which must have carried away the momentum. So everything kind of adds up, if that makes sense. But um, so that we've had basically what Olivia said is we've had lots of ways of inferring the presence of dark matter even without seeing it which I think is really cool. Oh no no that was a brilliant overview of all the different ways we can um, observe it yeah thank you so much. Um, so what is special about dark matter in regards to the formation of the first stars in the early universe? Well as you may remember from GCSE physics in order to form a star you first require an accumulation of gas and dust. Um, and this accumulation of gas and dust will then collapse due to its own gravity. However, the issue is when regular matter, when the regular matter of the early universe attempted to condense in a clump and collapse, um, its own, it produced its own pressure and therefore pushed back on itself. So it wasn't actually able to collapse. Um, however, Dark matter was a secret component to the formation of these stars because it has an ability to gravitate and condense without exerting a pressure on itself. So it can just condense freely without, you know, being pushed back by itself. Um, and this is because most collisions between matter, matter particles um, come from electrostatic repulsion um, and electrostatic re interaction requires interactions with light. And since light is made up with photons and photons are carriers of the electron, um, Sorry, let me just explain that again. <laughs> again I rushed through that. So basically, um, dark matter can condense um, without feeling this pressure. And this is because most collisions between matter, matter particles come from electrostatic repulsion. Um, an electrostatic repulsion in, or an electrostatic re uh, interaction requires interactions with light. And since light is made up so the, and this is because light is made up of photons and photons are carriers of the electromagnetic force. However, dark matter doesn't interact with light and therefore can't experience any electromagnetic attraction or repulsion. Basically, dark matter just doesn't interact with anything at all. Um, and because it, it, it doesn't experience any electromagnetic force, that means this is the reason why there is no pressure exerted when dark matter clumps together and thus dark matter can uh, can and did condense in clumps without feeling pressure because it just doesn't interact with the electromagnetic force and yeah so so i think so what you're saying is that pressure that the normal matter feels when it tries to condense arises from some sort of electromagnetic interaction and because dark matter doesn't interact with the electromagnetic force that means it can kind of clump together freely and um that, that helps <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely gosh it's a miracle that you managed to extract that from my terrible explanation no, no, it was so good it was so good <laughs>
<laughs> okay, um, so now that this dark matter has um, kind of had this superpower um, ability to condense without feeling this pressure, in turn, the ordinary gaseous matter of the early universe could then hop onto dark matter's bandwagon um, and fall into the gravitational wells created by the clumps of dark matter. And, and the, the, the gravitational wells created by dark matter were so great so that any um, ex pressure forcing the matter away was just negligible. So basically, ordinary matter could just jump onto what dark matter had created, allowing you know dark matter and, and allowing ordinary matter to come together. Um, and then, um, as this gas managed to uh, uh, condense and clump together, it then began. Uh, it then um, as it condensed and condensed, it became hotter and denser, and this eventually coalesced to form stars. Um, and this, and from this, and inside these stars, fusion of light elements such as hydrogen uh, started to release energy, um, lighting up the whole universe. And also, if you remember from GCSE, these lighter elements um, uh, fused together to form heavier elements such as uh, carbon and iron. Um, so yeah, dark matter is pretty important. Without dark matter, the, the, the normal matter of the early universe wouldn't have been able to condense together and thus stars wouldn't have been able to create it. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, and even now the structure of galaxies that exist today are still scaffolded by this network of dark matter clumps and filaments throughout the universe. And um, Nana and I actually attended a lecture the other week and they, 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 they explained how... Um, the dark matter clumps and filaments of the universe, the kind of pattern of dark matter filaments throughout the universe, actually like weirdly resemble the structure of neurons in the brain. And it, that's not to suggest that the galaxy is one big brain, of course, but I just think <laughs> because there's no like there's no there's no signal propagation throughout the filaments of all these galaxies, but it's just an interesting coincidence. And I think the lecturer spoke about how it might be um, might speak to how like maths permeates throughout the whole universe or something but it's it's just quite a cool coincidence I think yeah when you're speaking that I was thinking this sounds really familiar and I went and I realized it's because we like listen to the lecture together <laughs> we to yeah. the same lecture but yeah that's really interesting how it might be something to do with like the mathematics I guess that yeah. maybe helps systems maybe I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> I know it's just quite a cool coincidence isn't it yeah um I will add um a picture of comparing the, the dark matter filaments and, and the neurons in a brain in our on our pod page it's it's worth a look it's quite cool anyway so these earlier stars were probably um quite different to the stars that exist that exist now and so i thought i'd probably talk about a little bit more about um how modern stars compared to the very very first stars so a little bit of astronomy now well hang on this kind of whole thing has been a bit anyway some more <laughs> new information about stars um so did you know astronomers categorise stars into three groups, um, and these groups are known as populations, and they class stars based on the relative quantities of heavy elements or metals they possess. By the way, when astronomers use the word metal, they are basically referring to any element heavier than helium. So unless you're hydrogen or helium, you're classed as a metal to any astronomer. Anyway, so there's there's this property of stars called metallicity. Um, have I said that right? Yeah, metallicity. Yeah. Um, and metallicity refers to the relative quantity of metals in a star versus um, hydrogen and helium in a star. So that kind of ratio of hydrogen and helium to metals is referred to as metallicity. 
and that newer stars, um, so the latest stars, so the stars that exist in our universe, tend to have a high metallicity because they contain the dust from previous stars. Um, so the Sun, for example, is a very new star. Um, and it's, it's classed as a population one star. And that means that two to three percent of its mass is metals, uh, is these, two to three percent of its mass is these heavier elements, which is quite a significant amount. It's so funny how two to three percent is high metallicity. It's such a small percentage. <laughs> I know, such a small percentage, but still big enough to be classed as a population one star. Now, population two stars, which is like the next level down, um, are referred are called metal poor um, because only 0.1% or even lower of these um, stars, of the masses of these stars are metals. So only 0.1% of their mass are these heavier elements. Um, and these stars are perhaps the oldest stars in the Milky Way. And, um, and these population two stars would have been born when the Milky Way was still forming, for example, around 500 billion years after the Big Bang. So that's the second um, level of stars. And now the third level of stars are called population three stars. And these are stars which have no heavy metals inside them at all. So they're made of purely hydrogen and helium. And this is really quite extraordinary. Um, and it's these population three stars which are um, that are believed to have been born in the cosmic dawn. And, and the reason why um, population three stars have no metals in them is because the only elements that were formed in Big Bang nucleosynthesis were hydrogen and helium. And so this is all that the first stars really had to work with. There were no heavy metals like iron or, or anything else like that for, for these population three stars to be born from. Because it's interesting because I think the heavy metals in our universe actually come when a star dies or like when heavy stars die in supernova explosions. And because there hadn't been any stars before these population three stars, there was nowhere to get those heavy elements from. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and what's quite fascinating about these population three stars is that they're purely hypothetical. They have not been observed yet. Oh, wow. Um, they're now thought to have been long gone. So they're, they're just purely hypothesized. Um, but their hypothesized existence is still really important like they actually have a really fundamental role in the universe today so that's why they're hypothesized because they kind of need to have happened in order for the universe to be as it is so as you as you said Nina all well kind of as you as you implied all stars that exist today are mostly made of um, are mostly made of the raw um, materials forged in the Big Bang, so so mostly hydrogen and helium, but they're also comprised of heavier elements from stars that have come before them, from the supernovas of stars from generations before them. And you can tell this because, let's take the sun for example, when you have a look at the spectrum of the sun's light, um, which basically means when you, when you look at the sun's light and you split it all up, um, you can see traces of heavier elements which could not have been created in the Big Bang. So that's how you know that um, that these heavier elements, which which the sun contains, must have come from somewhere. Um, but the question is, wh where did these elements come from? And as Nina, um, as you said, um, these heavier elements may have been created in the cores of earlier generations of stars, such as population two stars, population three stars, um, uh, because when the earlier stars exploded into supernova heavier elements which were created in their core would have flung across the universe providing built the building blocks needed for the later formations of of planets and life as we know it so um the the, the new the population one stars which exist in the universe um basically you're right used up 
use are, are formed of the heavier elements create, generated by the population two and population three stars. But not only that, all our planets, uh, our planets and life as we know it, need these heavier elements formed from these population three stars to exist. So these stars certainly have a very key role. If they didn't exist and explode into supernova, then we wouldn't have our heavier elements and we probably wouldn't exist. So um <laughs> that's so that's so interesting that like stuff like the planets and the solar systems it kind of all those heavier elements comes from um like deaths, the star deaths. Yeah. It's kinda of like the the death of the star is just as important as the birth of the star, I guess. Oh that's so poetic. You're absolutely right. And I don't know, it seems kind of counterintuitive. I would have thought we started off with like, how can we just create heavier elements? That's just so cool. <laughs> stars are pretty amazing. Um, and also, another fun fact about Population 3 stars is they may have also um, triggered the universe's period of reionization. Uh, re so they, they're, they're perhaps one... They're perhaps hypothesized to be one cause of reionization. And um, Nana is going to explain reionization re soon, so that's something to look forward to. Um but there's something special. Um, so hang on. So as I said, population three stars, um, we haven't seen one yet. We're yet to observe a population three stars. And this is kind of odd because even red dwarfs, which, which are much, much smaller than, than, you know, which are quite small, have lifespans of trillions of years. So no red dwarfs have ever burnt out. Um, even K-type stars, which are smaller than the sun, live longer than the current age of the universe. So it seems strange that all of these population three stars have mysteriously disappeared when every other star that exists now wouldn't have disappeared if they had been born so long ago. Does that make sense? It's just kind of odd that all these stars have died out when the stars we have now have such long lifespans. Like, how come... Where did all the population three stars go? Shouldn't yeah. they have equally long lifespans? Um, well, the mysterious disappearance of these population three stars may have been due to the fact that they were really, really big. So even the smallest population three stars are thought to have been at least a few times bigger than the sun. And that's only the baby one. So <laughs> these population three wow. stars are really, really big. Um and so when a star has more mass, so for example, when it has more hydrogen in its, cure, in its core, um, this um, it causes there to be a stronger gravitational crush, which, which makes um, the core of the star much hotter because of a higher pressure. So when it's got more mass, it, it kind of, the star kind of collapses on itself much heavier, which, which um, makes the star much hotter because there's a lot of pressure and it's very dense. Um, and since the, the the star is such a high pressure, this this means that there is a much quicker rate of nuclear fusion um, inside the star's core. So higher pressure means quicker rate of uh, nuclear fusion. And I think is that because uh, like the the higher pressure basically means a higher temperature, and like most reactions, obviously temperature dependent. So I'm guessing higher pressure, higher temperature, higher temperature, quicker rate of fusion. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very dependent on. On, on temperature and in fact nuclear fusion rate is so so sensitive to temperature that even a small increase in temperature results in a dramatic increase in fusion rate so a star with 10 times more mass than the sun is actually burns 10,000 times brighter so this increase in mass which is kind of strongly correlated to increase in temperature causes a much greater increase in the rate of fusion which you can detect by how bright the star is um, 
So in summary, the bigger a star is, the shorter its lifespan because um, more pressure on the core makes the star hotter, which makes it burn out faster. So population three stars basically lived fast and died young, which is why none of them have been observed yet, because they're all long gone, because they were so big and they burnt out so quickly, which is why scientists believe that, um, which is why scientists think is the reason we can't see any today. Um, I was just going to say, sorry, um, what, what you were talking about earlier, I think it's it's kind of cool because you might think that a heavier star would have more fuel to burn, I guess, but then because it burns its fuel so much quicker, even though it had more fuel to begin with, it kind of like, it's outweighed by the fact that it burns its fuel so quickly, so it ends up having a shorter lifespan, which is really cool, I think. Absolutely, that is that is cool. You're right, you, you'd think it was the other way around, but it is really cool. Um, so you may be questioning, okay, I understand why these stars will have burnt out, but you can't just say that, okay, we can't see these stars, so they must have been really big. Like you, You've got to have a bit more evidence as to why you think these stars are big. You can't just kind of create um, a property of these stars to match why we can't see them. But there is, there's, there's other reasons why scientists think that these population three stars were so big. And that's due to the way that stars uh, form. If they weren't big, um, these stars couldn't have formed in the early universe just because of the conditions. In order to have formed in the early universe, they have to have been big. And I'll explain that a bit more. So, as I've mentioned, stars form when gas clouds collapse under their own gravity. But these gas clouds actually have their own internal thermal pressure, which resists the gravitational pull. So there's this dance going on between the push and pull of the cloud. Um, and warm gas clouds actually have more internal energy because you know their temperature is greater, their energy is greater, and thus their, their thermal pressure, which they exert against the force of gravity, um, helps allows them to stay puffed up against gravity. So they have this greater internal pressure. However, in order to collapse, stars, or, or I should say clouds of gas rather, must cool slightly um, in order to collapse and form stars. Um, and actually a sprinkling of heavier elements produces a powerful cooling effect. So heavier elements um, are actually really crucial in allowing clouds of gas to cool down uh, to the temperature they need to in order for stars to form. Um, and the reason why heavier elements are actually really effective in cooling down these gas clouds is because in these warm gas clouds with metals, um, metals kind of jostle around <laughs> ferociously throughout the cloud. And this causes the electrons on the metals and um, within the, within the um, metals to absorb energy so that they can jump into higher energy levels. Um, and then these um, electrons gain so much energy um, but eventually they, f they fall back down to lower energy levels and when they fall back down to these lower energy levels they emit photons of light at very specific wavelengths. And I think those the fact that it's very specific wavelengths is to do with the fact that the energy levels in like atoms are like discrete so when the electron jumps from one to the other it's a very specific amount of energy that it loses and that corresponds to a very specific wavelength as Olivia said. Yeah absolutely so these electrons can only jump up they describe it like steps right rather than a slope. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So an electron must go up a certain number of discrete steps rather than any distance up a slope. Yeah. And the same when electrons fall back down. So um, 
Yes, so as these electrons fall back down, um, they emit photons, and these photons can quickly shoot off outside of the, ga uh, the gas cloud, and they take energy with them, thus cooling down the, ga the gas cloud. So a quick recap of that, there's all these metals jostling around, then these electrons gain energy from the jostling around, but they lose that energy, and then they eject these photons which carry away um, heat energy from the cloud, and thus the clouds can cool down. So now that these, uh, the presence of these heavier metals have helped to cool the gas cloud down, this thermal the thermal pressure of the gas cloud is lower. Um, and because the thermal pressure is lower, it can no longer balance the gravity that's trying to force the cloud to collapse. And so the cloud starts to um, like condense under its own gravity and starts to fragment. And so this cloud uh, condenses and condenses until um, a point where even the small amount of thermal pressure remains can kind of balance, once again balance, um, like resist, make sure... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> a small amount of thermal pressure from the clouds can res uh, like resist further collapse, um, and thus, um, and so the gas cloud contracts and collapses much much slower at a slower rate because this thermal energy, this thermal pressure has suddenly kicked in, um, and the, the gas cloud like kind of fragments and thus stars can form. Um, so just to recap, the, so once the pressure of the cloud drops thanks to these ejected little photons. Um, the the, therm, the the cloud like collapses under its own gravity and then suddenly slows down due to the thermal pressure kicking in and it's at that point when the when the when the cloud suddenly starts to collapse a lot slower that it can begin to fragment and stars can actually form. However, um, so I've just spoken about how crucial the presence of heavy elements are in in allowing gas clouds to cool, but we've spoken about how. When the population three stars were formed, there was just there was no heavy elements. Yeah, so how could they form then? Well, it's very interesting. So without the presence of these heavier elements to cool down the very very first glass clouds, um, which were made of like pristine hydrogen and helium gas, um, they these gas clouds had a much higher thermal pressure since the gas cloud was, was so much hotter um, and since this internal pressure was so much higher the cloud undergoes like less collapse um, before the collapse suddenly slows down so if you remember just refer to that previous situation there was the, the ga gas cloud collapses really quickly and then suddenly slows down well the same thing happens but the period when the cloud is collapsing really, really quickly is much, much shorter because the, the push ah. and pull of the gravity and the thermal pressure... Because the thermal pressure is... Because the thermal pressure... Yeah, sorry. Thermal pressure is much greater this time because the cloud is um, much hotter because it hasn't had those elements to help cool it down. Yeah, absolutely. So since there is less collapse compared to the previous situation, um, there is... There is um, the, the gas clouds are, are just much bigger by the time that they reach the point where, star, where the cloud starts to fragment and stars can form. Um, and this basically produces more massive stars. Um, and so the lack of heavy elements available when the first stars were forming are why population three stars are believed to be so massive. So that's the good reason which also, um, you know, contributes to this idea of these population three stars being so massive. Which is why we can't see them anymore, yeah. Yeah, which is why we can't see them anymore, exactly. Um, and their mass, their, their, their big mass also has other uh, cool, cool consequences. So um, 
it is believed because they were so big, um, all, it is believed that all these population three stars went into supernova at the end of their lo lifetimes because they were massive enough. And as a consequence of these supernova explosions, um, the first heavy elements that we see in the stars today and indeed create, you know, uh, life um, <laughs> may have. Um, uh, were produced in these supernova explosions, as we've explained a little bit earlier on, and um, and thirdly, they uh, the the heavy elements uh, produced in these supernova explosions are also thought to perhaps be one of the mechanisms for re the reionization of the universe. And as I've said, Nina is going to explain the reionization of the universe a little bit later on. Yeah, I think I'm not sure if it's the heavy elements themselves, but I think because when the star actually like explodes in the supernova, I'm guessing it releases lots of energy. So I think it's more the radiation which is a possible source of reionization rather oh, than okay. the heavy metals themselves. But yeah, the supernova explosions are definitely one way that um, the reionization of the universe might have began. Ah, yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and also, sorry, final fun fact about these massive supernovas, they're also thought to have left behind like colossal black, hole, black holes, <laughs> which over time are thought to have like coalesced to become the start of the supermassive black holes at the centre of our galaxy, so at the centre of the Milky Way. So these supermassive black holes are thought to have been uh, initially like like the the population three stars are the seedlings of these supermassive black holes at the at the center of our galaxy oh that's really cool so the, the population three stars like died supernova explosion left behind black holes and then all those black holes started to like coalesce together and form these supermassive black holes oh that's really cool absolutely so yeah so for just a theoretical population of stars these population three stars are certainly really really important so this cosmic dawn is not only you know a time when when light was when when the when light started to shine through the universe but it's absolutely fundamental to how our galaxies and and how our universe works today yeah and as um i'll talk about um these black holes are actually quite important because they might have um powered these um objects called quasars and those are actually really important in the reionization of the universe as well so Ooh, okay. i'll explain that soon i look forward to hearing about that thank you nana so that wraps up um, this section on the Cosmic Dawn and next week we'll finally be finishing our discussion on the history of the universe. Yes, we will be wrapping up our journey by looking at the epoch of reionization and um, this will also wrap up Spherical Cow. Oh, that's so sad. I'm trying not to think about that right now. Um, anyway, it's goodbye for now from Spherical Cow. Spherical cow.